So today I have the pleasure of preaching about the work of Christ. I'll be preaching about what Christians believe Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually accomplished. You see, to an outside observer, Christianity might seem pretty trivial. Why would the death of a 2,000-year-old religious leader, a humiliating death at that, fundamentally change anything about the world? Or even the spiritual realm, if I was willing to admit there was one. However, like it or not, like Rick said a couple weeks ago, Jesus has dominated the face of Western civilization for almost two millennia. And while Jesus did shape the course of history, Christians also hold that he fundamentally changed the spiritual world and realm as well. So to give a helpful analogy, if there was someone who didn't know how to swim, who was drowning on the side of a dock or pier, and there was someone who just jumped in on the other side, a kind man, and he just went in and said, I love you, before he quickly sank to his own death and saved no one, that wouldn't really make much sense or be of any help. Nor would it be of any help if that same man jumped in and told the person who didn't know how to swim, just swim over here and I can save you. I can rescue you. Wouldn't make much sense or be of any help. However, if that same man jumped in and wrapped his arms around that person and swam to shore and resuscitated that person on shore, that man would be a hero. And that's exactly why Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. What Jesus has done through his life and his death on the cross and eventual resurrection was to actually save those who put their trust in him. And while I can't cover all the implications of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection here today, there's really just four things that I want to communicate that Christ has accomplished on the behalf of believers. And those four things are the forgiving of sins, the appeasing of God's wrath, making believers righteous, and reconciling us to God himself. So to start off, the forgiveness of sins— Perhaps the most well-known thing about Christianity is that we believe that God forgives sins. However, that claim is not unique or exclusive to Christianity. Jews, Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, Catholics, they all believe that God forgives sins. However, what is unique to the Bible and what is unique to Christianity is the way that God forgives sins. Namely, that our sins are forgiven through trusting in the sacrificial death of Christ, and that it is sufficient to remove all guilt before God. So there's two elements I want to hone in on and break down in that last statement, that Jesus' death is sacrificial and that Jesus' death is sufficient. The first element is that Jesus' death is sacrificial. When we turn to God's word in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the Bible plainly tells us Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. But the question is how and why does Jesus' death atone for our sins? And in order to understand that, we have to understand the sacrificial system that's weaved thematically through the Bible. You see, the Bible is just not a bunch of, group, uh, bunch of ungrouped, uh, not connected stories. While there are several stories and smaller plots, it's really one big plot, one giant story of God's redemptive plan for humanity. 
And to understand that well and understand the key ideas in it, we have to see the themes that God weaves into his story. So the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. What we earn for our sin is death. Death is our payment for sin. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. And that is exactly what God told Adam and Eve, the first humans in the garden, that if they disobeyed him and they ate of that tree, they would die. But as we all know, Adam and Eve did eat of that tree. And they disobeyed God. They ate the fruit. And then afterwards, what did they try to do? They realized they had sinned against God and they had shame and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. But then what does God do when he meets them? God replaces those fig leaves and clothes them with animal skins. Now when you think about that, where did these animal skins come from? They came from two animals that had to be sacrificed for them. The animals represented the punishment that they deserved, and God graciously provided a substitute for their penalty. And then if we fast forward to the Old Testament, we find Moses, and he tells the Israelites, this whole sacrificial system to repeatedly offer these animals over and over on behalf of sins. And the sacrificed animal would act as a reminder of what was owed to sinners, death. And the animal was constantly reminding the Israelites that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness. Wrongdoing demands justice. Someone had to pay for their offenses to God for breaking God's law. And the animals reminded Israel that God had provided a substitute to pay their penalty. But you see, the animals themselves were just a symbol. They never actually took away anyone's sins. And we know this because the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood and bulls of goats to take away sins. So all the sacrificed animals in the Old Testament never removed anyone's sins because they were not of the same substance. They couldn't be our substitute. They weren't human. Nor did the animals have any capability of atoning for sin because only God himself could do that. You see, they only postponed God's judgment until the true and real sacrifice would come. And that sacrifice was Jesus upon the cross. The animals only ever acted as a placeholder of what was to come in the true sacrifice of Jesus. See, those animals were like a shadow of the real thing. When you see a shadow, you can see the outline. You kind of know what the figure is, but it's not the thing itself. It's just a shadow. Jesus was the true sacrifice. He was the sacrifice that was foreshadowed by all these animal sacrifices. So then God created the entire sacrificial system in order to point us to Jesus that he would one day make this real payment for sins. That when we saw the real thing, we would know it because we had seen the shadow. And you may object, but how is that fair? How is it fair that God's son pays for sins? In other words, wouldn't it be kind of like a child cosmic abuse to send someone's child to die for other sins? And I would give two reasons why not. The first simply is that Jesus gladly laid down his life and willingly laid down his life for us. The second is that, as Rick talked about last week, Jesus himself was God. 
So God was the one who punished our sins in Jesus, and he was the one who's himself who bore that punishment. So here I think there might be a helpful analogy. And if you think of yourself in a tribal setting, in this tribe a robbery occurs, and after some investigation it's found out the chieftain's young son is the perpetrator. Now the law, of the, de- the law of the tribe demands that the boy be punished. There has to be consequences for what he does. And so the chieftain, although sor- sorrowful, as the enforcer of the law declares his mu- son must be punished. Thirty lashes at the end of a whip. However, on the day of his punishment, just as the punisher raises his hand to whip his son, the chieftain with tears compassionately comes and he wraps himself around his son as the whip that comes down. He took the punishment that was owed to his son out of compassion and love for him. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us, taken the punishment that we deserved. And since Jesus lived a perfect life, His sacrifice was perfect. It was capable of paying for all sins, taking all the punishment. And that's the second element of Jesus' death, that it is sufficient. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time his enemies would be made a footstool to his feet. For by a single sacrifice, offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's perhaps the biggest difference between Christianity and other religions, what they teach about Jesus' death. We hold that Jesus' singular sacrifice could cover all a believer's past, present, and future sins. All of the religions aside from Christianity teach in opposition to the scriptures that something additional needs to be done in order for God to accept us. As if doing good things can wipe away the wrong things that we have done. But nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing is lacking than Jesus Christ's sacrifice and nothing could be added to it. And to do so, as the Bible says, is to try to establish our own righteousness and reject Christ. And if you see there in the end of that verse, it says he is the high priest, Jesus, who sat down. He sat down because his work was completed, finished. You see, in the Old Testament, where they offered animal sacrifices was in the temple. And there was no chairs in the temple, nowhere to sit down. Why? Because the priest, the high priest, was always busy offering sacrifices, offering incense. Out of reverence for God, he was always working, supplicating on behalf of the people. But you see, Jesus sat down in the highest place, in the real temple, beside the throne of God. And as he said on the cross, it was finished. His work was complete. It was done. The penalty was paid. And so since the penalty was paid, the ultimate approval from God was that God would raise Jesus from the dead. That was the acceptance of payment. Death would not hold him. He would rise again and live forever. 
And so when we talk about what Jesus accomplished, we can't just stop with the forgiveness of sins, but we must also understand that God appeased God's wrath. Now God's wrath is his holy, his justified, and his active opposition towards sin. Let me say that again. God's wrath is his holy, his justified, and his active opposition toward sin. See, the prevailing belief in our culture is that people are basically good. But if you spend any amount of time in Southern California on the 5 freeway or in the DMV or babysitting your friend's two-year-old, you know that's not always true. (laughs) And so people believe, even if they're willing to admit that there's a God, that he may be disappointed or disapprove of some of the things that we do, but he's certainly not readily opposed to you if you don't believe in him. And no, we don't have time to fully argue this out in some sort of full apologetical method. I just want to submit one man's experience to you. His name is Langdon Gilkey. Gilkey wrote a book called Shangtung Compound about his experience as an American teacher interned in China in a Japanese concentration camp. Until his two-and-a-half-year experience, Gilkey was a secular humanist. Amongst many things, humanists would hold that humanity has no need for a God to be moral. We're rational. Being good and being moral makes sense, therefore we do it. That we're basically good. But Gilkey's mind was radically changed when he saw the luxuries of life stripped from people. Self-proclaimed Christians and atheists alike both adamantly refusing to share shelter with those who had none, some withholding clothes that had none, forcing those to stand, eat, and sleep naked before their dorm mates, rampant, stealing, and lying, all in the name of self-preservation, whatever it took to survive. Gilkey, at the conclusion of his experience, had this to say from his observations. The main article of faith of the humanist, namely the goodness of mankind and man's consequent capacity to be moral, is refuted by any careful study of human nature. If it is unreasonable to hold a religious faith that cannot be demonstrated, surely it is is irrational to defend a humanistic faith that the evidence so universally contradicts. He saw people for what they really were at the base of them. And really, Gilkey's experience just illustrates for us what the Bible tells us about human nature. In Romans 3, 11 and 23, it says, None are righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is because of our sin that there's no neutral ground between us and God. There's no neutral ground between God. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other. And Jesus himself taught and preached about the wrath of God. In John 3.36, he said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Elsewhere, he told his disciples in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, or do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him 
who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus wasn't talking about the devil when he talked about him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. He was talking about God, to fear God. And hell is an uncomfortable topic for many, me included. It's not emotionally satisfying or comfortable. But the scriptures teach it, and Jesus taught it. Probably more than anyone else in the Bible, he talked about hell. But we know that even God says he doesn't take pleasure in condemning the wicked. Ezekiel 8.32 reads, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. You see, hell exists because it's primarily the manifestation of God's wrath against sin. Hell defines what the foolishness, the abomination, the heinousness it is to reject a perfect God. And those of us who follow Christ, we we shouldn't diminish hell. We shouldn't diminish sin. To do so is to diminish the greatness of our salvation. Hell was what was owed to us, and that is what Jesus paid the price for. Hell is the price by which our redemption is weighed. And we had an infinite obligation to God to obey Him, to be thankful to Him for even our own existence. But we reject God, and we reject His laws. And that is the worst crime that could ever be committed. You see, it's not the width of our sins that makes hell just. Meaning, it's not the amount of sins that you commit. But it's the height of your sin the height of your offense, the one who is offended is so awesome and so great. That's how disgusting, that's how horrible it is to reject him is in eternity in hell. Therefore, God's wrath is the central obstacle that has to be overcome in order for us to be reconciled to God. God has primarily saved us from his own wrath through Jesus Christ. So in short, you could summarize it this way that we are saved by God, from God, and for God, all for His glory. And we must not stop with the gospel of what Christ has done through us, just has done for us through His death, but also what He has accomplished for us through His life. See, Jesus didn't just die for us. He lived for us. The gospel is like a two-sided coin. On the one side, you have Jesus' life, and on the other side, you have Jesus' death. And you ask, what do you mean by that? You see, Christ lived a sinless life, according to Hebrews 4.15, 1 John 3.5. Jesus was the only perfect man who ever lived. Jesus, like the first man named Adam, is a representative of humanity. But he is better than Adam. He is the better Adam. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus obeyed God perfectly every single time, in every way, all of his laws. The Bible tells us that God was pleased with Jesus. And just as Adam represented humanity in our rebellion against God, so has Christ represented humanity in our reconciliation to God. So Romans puts it this way. For as by one man's, Adam, 
disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's, Jesus, obedience, the many will be made righteous. So through Adam, all of humanity inherits a sinful nature. But those who believe and trust in what Christ has done have a new representative in Christ rather than Adam. And they inherit the righteousness and perfection of Jesus. In simpler terms, this is what the scriptures teach. When we trust in Christ, not only are our sins forgiven, but Christ transfers his perfect life to us on our account. His perfect life is attributed to us as if we lived it. And we are counted righteous in God's eyes because Christ has been perfect for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums this up well in one verse. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you are in Christ, you must know that God sees you the same way that he sees his perfect son, Jesus. He is pleased with you. Not because you actually are perfect, but because Christ has been perfect on your behalf. You are clothed in his spotless white robe of righteousness. And although that reality isn't fully reflected, one day when you see Christ face to face in a new heaven and a new earth, you will be changed and be like him. Bible says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face. And now I can end my sermon here. Perhaps most of you will think that I fully presented the gospel. That, that's, that sounds like pretty good news to me, that I have my sins forgiven, I can live with a clean conscience, that God is no longer angry or I am no longer God's enemy. He has wrath towards me that I've been given Christ's goodness and I get to go to heaven. But I'd submit to you that I haven't preached to you the full gospel. In the words of Pastor John Piper, until the gospel promises of the forgiveness of sins, the appeasement of God's wrath, and the transferring of righteousness lead you to behold and embrace God himself as your highest joy, you have not embraced the gospel. It is critical for Christians to always ask questions, particularly in this case, maybe a question you never asked yourself. Why is the gospel good news? Why is it good news that our sins are forgiven? Why is it good news that God is no longer wrathful towards me? And why is it good news that Christ is giving me his righteousness? And you might say, isn't that obvious? Because I don't want to go to hell. Because I want a clean conscience because I want to go to heaven, because I want peace in my life, because I'm tired of the way that I'm living, because I want to be with my deceased family members someday and friends, because I want to live in a perfect world someday, and I heard Jesus is going to make that. And while those are all good things, there's something missing from all those answers. What is it? God. God is missing. God is missing from all of them. God wasn't even mentioned once. You see, they fail to treat God himself as the best thing about the good news of the gospel. They fall short of treasuring God himself 
as he lovingly gives himself to us by removing every obstacle in our path in order to have a relationship with him again. Everything that we benefit from as a result of what Jesus has done on our behalf is a free gift. You can't earn it. It can only be given to you. And those gifts are precious. But those gifts are just those gifts. And they serve as a means to an end. And that end is God himself. God is the supreme gift and good news of the gospel. If we believe and trust the good news of Jesus Christ, we get God. And that's a bold claim. So I want you to see in Scripture where this comes from and where it's confirmed. And we're going to look at three examples from three different people. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might what? That he might bring us to God. Elsewhere, John records in Jesus, John records Jesus in chapter 17, 3, praying in the garden the night before he would be crucified. Our one praying for believers, Christ asked something from God. He asked them that God would give them eternal life. And he says, what is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And lastly, Paul the Apostle expresses it this way. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Of having a clean conscience? Of having the goodness of Christ? Of not going to hell? No. Of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He counts them as rubbish, as dung, as nothing. In order that what? That he may gain Jesus Christ. In order that I may gain Christ, he says. You see, the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us is that we can again be in close fellowship with God. The, God. the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. And I think this might be a helpful analogy. But when I sin against my spouse, against Hannah, I need to ask myself, why do I want her forgiveness? Because someone's not going to make me meals anymore? Because if we had kids, I wouldn't people, want people to know that we're fighting? Because I don't want to have a guilty conscience while I'm at work and for something to nag my head? No, I want my wife back. I want to be with my wife in sweet fellowship with her. And that is exactly what God is doing for us in Christ. So the good news of Jesus Christ is not primarily that God has made much of us, which he has. He favors us. He loves us. He delights in us. But the truly good news is that God has freed us from sin and through Christ removed every obstacle that was in the way that kept us from him. So we are able to enjoy making much of him forever to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
and in making much of God and seeing God as he really is in, in Christ, you will find no greater satisfaction, no greater purpose, no greater peace, no greater pleasure, and no greater joy because nothing is greater than God. You see, God himself is the good news of the gospel. And I'll end with this, that I hear so many gospel presentations where people say you need to invite Jesus to be in your life and into your heart. But in reality, when I read scripture and I read what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught, I see more and more that really the gospel is an invitation of Christ for us to be in his life to mold our life around his. And there's nothing better than him. And let me say that it's not easy to follow Christ. It will cost you. It will cost you everything. Jesus said that no one could be my disciple unless he renounces everything that he has. But let me tell you, just as the scriptures do, and the early apostles, and everyone who knew Jesus and knows Jesus. He is worth it. There's nothing greater that God can give for us. And really today as we take communion, that's somewhat what this table is about. It's reminding us that he has removed every obstacle so we could be in with him. We can be in communion with God again. And we should remember that as we come to this table today. So with that, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a couple more songs and take communion. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity, but thank you most for your son, Jesus Christ, the joy of knowing him, the satisfaction of knowing him, Lord. To get to behold him, Lord, I just pray that you would reveal him more and more to us and how great he truly is, and we would be mystified, we'd be amazed by Jesus, Lord. And I just pray that you would help the people here who already know you to taste that more and more, the goodness of Christ. And for those who haven't, Lord, I pray that you would begin a longing in them to want Christ more than anything, to see that he is that good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.